All right. That's good enough. Good job, you guys. At least you met somebody. I hope you met someone that you didn't know before or just got reacquainting yourself with people. It's really important that we get to know one another. You know, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, and as a family in, in God, it's really neat to be able to come together. I do say this all the time, but I'm really grateful that you're here this morning, uh, if not for each other, but for myself, and seeing uh, the encouragement of people who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior coming together to worship our Father in one body. It's really an awesome sight. Do you want to welcome Walnut Creek again if, uh, if you're there? I know that sometimes they record, sometimes they don't, but I'd like to say hi. Um, I want to make a point of, again, going over the outline that it's in your program. I, I do this for a reason so that, you know, one of the things that we try to do as, as pastors and uh, speakers up here is try to have you understand something from the Bible that we're preaching from. And on the right, on, you'll see on your on your handout here that I have the outline in that one column and what does this mean for me. Maybe some thoughts will come up during this message or as you read the scripture, something will come up in your mind that you would want to write down. Just jot that down. And then what do you see on the bottom is some of you are artists or illustrators or just doodlers. I mean, that's a place for you to do that to kind of help you jar your memory or jar your uh, thinking that you're able to take something away. And the main thought, you'll hear that, that you just fill in the blanks there. We're calling this a portrait of grace from Judges 13. And as we begin together, let's pray. Father, give us your wisdom. Give us your thoughts. Uh, we know that you wrote the word, that it is your word, that when you write things in the Bible, that things that we look at and study, they're there for a reason, and it's to know you better. Through Old Testament and New Testament, there is the thread of your son Jesus Christ, the gospel message throughout from Genesis to Revelation, that as we get to know you better and understand who you are, in our sinfulness, grace abounds. May you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, some of you know my oldest daughter, Jessica. Uh, I just saw her walk in. And she uh, came here with her, her I, I, she's married to Tian, has two kids, Megumi and Toshi. And uh, I got her permission to share the story, so uh, don't, don't get uncomfortable. You know, when she was three or four years old, we, we used to go, shopping at this place called Western Christian Bookstore, which was in Hayward. If you remember that, in those days, not that long ago, you actually had to go to the store to buy books, right? You had to go to the store. You didn't buy them on Amazon. You didn't buy them somewhere else. You had to go to a store. So there's a bookstore there called Western, and, and we went there quite often. So when, our, when we show up, uh, someone would say hi because the employees would kind of get to know us. But on this particular day, after a good time with Jessica shopping and browsing the store, it was time to go. You know, we couldn't stay there forever. It was time to go, but she, at that point, was not ready to go. She didn't, she didn't want to go. So I said, okay, we have a few more minutes. Gave her a few more minutes to just kind of browse around and, you know, mess around and stuff. And then I said, okay, we really got to go. And I was getting more insistent because I had a schedule to keep, you know, and, and a three or two or three-year-old doesn't really have a schedule, except for mine. And we, I was trying to be more insistent. And what did she do? Y you want to guess? What did you say? That, right, someone said fit. That's right. It wasn't like getting physically fit. It was like a fit, a tantrum. She laid on her back. I don't know if you remember this. She laid on her back, kicked her arms, flailing, kicked her legs, flailing her arms around, and crying like loud. Western Christ Christian bookstore was not big, right? It was everyone heard. Basically, everyone heard. I was embarrassed. So, you know, I'm, I'm saying hi to the employees and stuff. And I was like... I was frustrated and mad and angry, and I, I, I could do nothing 
to calm her down. So, so what, what, what do you think I did as a loving father? It's kind of, I threw a Bible at her? Okay, <laughs> that's why she knows the words. Okay, never mind, I did that. What I did was I walked away. I left her in the aisle with flailing on the ground, just out there, like screaming, crying. But, you know, remember Western had lower bookshelves, and I'm tall, so I could look over the aisle. So I didn't abandon her. I let her just cry it out. Eventually, she calmed down. Eventually, she calmed down. But wh why do I bring this up? You have a picture of Jessica on the ground, flailing her arms, crying, throwing attention. Why do I bring this up? Because for me, in Israel, in the book of Judges, act like children. You hear them over and over again, disobeying God, rebelling against him. <clears throat> Instead of listening to God, they did their own thing. And there's a picture there. Israel on the ground in the bookstore, flailing their arms. They were throwing tantrums. Children throw tantrums because they believe what they are demanding is right in their own eyes. They really believe they have a right to do what they're doing because they believe what they want is right. They don't care if they're embarrassing themselves. They don't care if they're embarrassing the people who are caring for them. They just want something, and they demand it. They think they're right. They want what they believe is theirs with their whole mind, body, and soul. No matter what you say, no matter how unreasonable it may be, they think they deserve whatever they want. Toy, dessert, screen time, whatever that child wants, they demand it. They are thinking, they are correct in their thinking, and everyone else is wrong. That's the child. Now this is the background of Judges 13, and all of Judges actually when you think about it, because first, the first verse in Judges 13 says, Israel again did what was right, what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Israel had strayed so far from the Bible, which is the first five books at the time, that, that just as children don't think their behavior was wrong or sinful, they lived that way because they had no standard. Their standard was themselves. Through their own eyes, Israel fooled themselves into thinking and believing that how they conducted themselves was okay. Their corrupt lifestyle and actions were based upon the prevailing culture and religion of that time. They were surrounded by this culture and religion. They did what was right in their own eyes, according to the culture, not the conviction of the word of God. They didn't look at it. In effect, as they were living this, this lifestyle away from the word of God, they were determining what sin was and what, was, what sin was not. They determined in their own mind what sin was and was not. Therefore, they're living a life thinking they're okay, but in the eyes of God, it was evil. They, ne they neglected to remember and recall that only God defines sin, not humanity, not culture, not society, not religion. Only God defines sin. And sin is anything outside of God's will, regardless of what we're surrounded by. When you think about that, no wonder we're sinners. Anything outside of God's will is sin. As the 17th century Puritan writer Thomas Brooks said, he said, Satan paints sin with virtue's colors. Satan paints sin with virtue's colors. You know that Satan is the father of all lies, right? So he paints sin in a beautiful way. In other words, Satan makes sin look beautiful and good. Satan makes sin look beautiful and good. 
Imperfect people like ourselves do the same thing by fooling ourselves into thinking that we can define sin, that we can rationalize our lifestyle and not call it sin because we rationalize and justify our lifestyles. Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of man are clean in their own sight, in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. So we think the way we think is clean, but if we don't check it out with God's word, then we might be checked. Maybe not there. Maybe not clean as we thought. The Lord weighs the motives. Upon examining closely the events and context of Judges 13, we will see that God offers his perfect grace to imperfect people. There's the hint right there. That's the main thought. God offers his perfect grace to imperfect people. How is this grace revealed in this morning's scripture? this morning's text what do we learn about grace from this story that we're about to read what does God's perfect grace look like to imperfect people what does God's perfect grace to imperfect people look like and we're going to see that first we discover from verses 1 through 7 that God's perfect grace is miraculous God's perfect grace is miraculous God's grace is truly amazing it's wonderful beyond our imagination is something we don't deserve. Yet God freely offers this supernatural gift, this perfect grace to imperfect people. Let's look at Romans, uh, Romans, Judges 13, verses 1 through 7. Judges 13, 1 through 7. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold now, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to the son, a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Four and five are the Nazarite vow that they took to set a person apart. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me. His appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. God's perfect grace is miraculous. God called Samson from the womb to be a Nazarite, to sit, be set apart to accomplish his plan to, to deliver Israel from Philistines. In the midst of Israel's poor behavior that we talked about, God initiates a plan to begin delivering his chosen people from the Philistines through the gracious gift of this miraculous birth to a barren, unnamed woman. A man of God appears to this woman and says to her, Though you have been born no children, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now I need to explain what the biblical uh, definition of a miracle is. It's defined as an extraordinary occurrence attributable to God's hand, which leaves a marked impression upon the text. In other words, 
By definition, this foretold and eventual birth is a miracle only because God can make it happen, no one else. Only God can make it happen. And only God can foretell this person is going to deliver Israel from the Philistines. It's a miracle. Not only will this birth be mir- miraculous, it's, 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 it's set up when the man of God instructs this unnamed woman to be careful in verses 4 and 5. Be careful not to drink wine or strong drink nor any unclean thing because her son would be a Nazarite. This child, this unborn child would be a Nazarite which is a person who vows to stay separate for God's purposes. Called out from the womb to be separate to live out God's purposes. By that birth, the delivery of Israel will begin from Philistine. Though they were not fully delivered in the 40 years that Samson was there, it was the beginning of the deliverance of Israel. The impending birth to a woman who was a barren woman was a miracle. God's grace was demonstrated through his plan to begin freeing Israel through this birth. And likewise, God's perfect grace for imperfect people is just as miraculous. God's perfect grace for imperfect people is just as miraculous. There's nothing that you and I can do to make grace happen. There's nothing we can do. We cannot do anything to earn it. We cannot be rich enough. We cannot be smart enough. We can't work hard enough. We can't be spiritual enough to earn God's grace. There's nothing that can be done to get grace. Only God and has, the, has the ability to give this gift called grace. This portrait of grace we're looking at is a gift from God that we do not deserve. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that none of us could boast that no one may boast. You know, sometimes maybe you do this too. Maybe you wonder about God's reaction to our need to be reminded again and again, grace is an undeserved gift. We hear this constantly, but we always, many times we we doubt that in our actions and our behaviors. Does he ever get tired? Does God ever get tired? Because I forget about this river of grace that's within our souls because of Jesus Christ. Or does he become impatient with my lack of faith to completely receive this grace that he gives to us so freely? These questions lead to our next point in answering what does God's perfect grace to imperfect people look like? In verses 8 through 14, we discover that God's perfect grace is patient. God's perfect grace is patient. Let's look at verses 8 through 14. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again, that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came, to the, other, whom, the, man who came the other day has appeared to me. Then Manoah arose and followed his wife. And then he came to the man who said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now, when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation be, or his mission? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Let the woman pay attention to all that I said. 
She who should not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing, let her observe all that I command. God's perfect grace is patience. In our fears and our doubts, there's one in eternity. There's no one in eternity, actually, more capable to deal with those fears and doubts than God himself. His grace is long-suffering. It's truly tolerant and persistent. No matter what questions we bring before him, as long as we remain teachable and seek to know his truth, his grace will patiently guide us. Manoah, from verses 8 through 14, instead of trusting the man of God, wanted to know the rules or guidelines how to raise his child when he requested of the man of God to teach them what to do for the boy in verse 8. Manoah is saying, teach us what we should do for this boy. Now, this may seem like a reasonable statement to teach me how to raise my boy, but we have to realize and remember that this religious culture, this society, was based on rules and regulations and it was works-oriented. In other words, they had a bunch of things they had to do to please their gods. Israel was being influenced by this works-oriented culture. They had, to fo- they had to follow these in order to please their gods. And so when Noah's question, what shall be the boy's, boy's mode of life and his vocation or mission be, the lesson that we need to look at, the lesson that we learn is God's grace is for imperfect, imperfect people and it's to be received by faith, not by what you do. In his inquiry to find out how to raise this boy, it's trying to be someone who has control in guiding this boy to be what God wants him to be. It's kind of a tricky thing there, but that's how Satan gets in there. He fools us into thinking that we need to do something for grace. That's what Manoah, whether he knew it or not, was doing when he's asking these questions. He was falling into that culture where it was works-oriented, that you had to earn your grace, that you had to earn God's grace. Sometimes our questions, if we're really honest with ourselves, are ways to gain control. And when we try to do that and our questions are not immediately answered, we need to trust and learn how to faithfully rest in God's care. Questions we might ask God, what will I do in life? What will I be in life? Will I ever get married? Why did my dad or my mom die so young? Why is my child being bullied? Why am I being bullied? Now, these are reasonable questions. We have these kind of questions in our lives. Like Manoah, we ask good questions, but when we lack faith in God's perfect grace, are they really worth asking? Are they really worth asking? God's perfect grace is for us. He'll take care of us. He'll patiently be in our lives. Why do we ask? Their child was chosen by God to begin delivering Israel from the Philistines. How this child was raised or not raised would not prevent God from doing what he set out to do. God in his perfect grace did not require anything but faith from Manoah. Faith is the key. This truth of receiving God's perfect grace is the same today. God does not need our help, but he graciously includes us in his plans through faith in him. God's flawless patience, flawless grace, 
patiently guides us through our flawed tendency to have things our way and want things our way. When we know someone who is suffering and God seems silent because the situation is not being fixed fast enough by our standards, isn't it tempting to question God? Many years before my dad died in 2014 when he began his uh, dialysis, I remember asking, why, God, does my dad need to suffer so much? I, I wondered that because in his dialysis treatment that he had to begin, it didn't go very well. There was infections, the things that he had to do were not working right, a lot of different things that were causing problems for his life. Days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months. I felt helpless, hopeless, and useless because I could not help him. He's in Seattle, I'm in California. Not that makes a difference, I just could not help my dad. God, where are you, was the question. It was not a good time when I was living through that. It, it wasn't a fun time, and even as I look back, it wasn't a, a very pleasant time. But when I look how God used that time, my faith was strengthened in the process. I had no one else to turn to but him. He patiently worked through me during my questioning period. There will be moments in your journey with Jesus when God's perfect grace will patiently grow your faith, even if you don't understand the situation. Even if you don't get it, God's grace is there for you. And be used patiently to grow your faith. It's especially important that during these times where when we're going through this questioning and suffering and, mis and not understanding, that we cling onto God's word. Don't be the Israelites. Don't turn from God's word. Turn to God's word and pray then. Words like Psalm 28, 7 that says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Very confident when you put your trust and faith in the strength of God. The promise of God's help when I fully trust in him has lifted me up out of many valleys in my life. I found hope from Psalm 34. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. This psalm helped me keep things in perspective. It helped me understand that sadness will not last forever, and joy will return. It's a word. It's a promise. It's a truth that weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. In my impatience, the perfect grace of God is patiently shaping yours and my character to enable us to give God glory in all circumstances. Is that my phone? Okay. Because I don't have it up here. I left it over there. Sorry. So th it is. It is something that we have to remember that God's perfect grace is patient with us in our impatience. Now, this portrait, portrait of grace thus far has painted a picture of, of the miracle of grace, the patience of grace, and further from 15 through 20, we will see God's perfect grace is compassionate. God's perfect grace is compassionate. Compassion is how we calmly think about grace. None of us are perfect. All of us could use God's mercy, empathy, and sympathy at times in our lives, especially when we make wrong choices and we know it and make sinful mistakes. We could use God's compassion. In the case of Manoah, the compassion of perfect grace is shown through imperfect motives. Look at verses 15 through 20. 15 through 20. 
Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please, let us detain you so that we may prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. But the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? seeing it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord. And he, perf and he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Again, keep in mind the culture that they are living in. God chose them to be the persons where deliverance of Israel would come through the birth of their son. Manoah, in accordance with tradition, offers to make a meal for the man of God. He says, why don't we eat? It sounds nice, but in that culture, that tradition, the meal obligates the guest to the host. There's an obligation from that meal to return something or do something. But observe how the, this man of God responds. He does not reveal his name, just as he did not in verse 6. Instead, this man of God deflects the invitation and desires to give credit to the Lord God by instructing Manoah to offer a burnt offering to God. And then he gets risen to the flames. God, in his compassion, offers his perfect, perfect grace despite imperfect motives. Manoah, whether he really knew this or not, was doing something with God that was not pure. It was not a pure motive. But God in his perfect grace offers compassion to us despite our imperfect motives. When I read this portion of scripture, I saw Manoah as trying to gain control of the situation through manipulation. The compassion of grace is often revealed when we, <coughs> when we need it most. I think the majority, if not everyone here, understands what it means to be passive-aggressive. We try to aggressively get something passively. We try to manipulate the situation. We try to manipulate God. For instance, we might say, God, if you get me this job or this spouse, I will give my life to you. That's aggressively trying to get something by passively asking. God, this person really bugs me. Do you really expect me to love that person? The Bible says yes. Why do we ask that question? We know the answer. It's passively, aggressively trying to manipulate God to say, yeah, you can just go hate that person. That doesn't work, right? Because we are that way sometimes asking these questions, forgetting that God knows our hearts. God knows our hearts. He knows when we're trying to manipulate the situation. What happened when Manoah offered the burnt offering? The man of God ascended to heaven in the flame. It was then that Manoah and his wife realized it was the Lord they were speaking to. This is God's perfect grace. When we face the reality of our attempts to manipulate God or people, we should fall to our knees and give thanks that God does not destroy us but offers compassion. When we try to manipulate, 
get our way with God, knowing the true answer from the word of God, he's compassionate. He's forgiving. That is grace. That's God's perfect grace, full of compassion. Now, to complete this picture of grace, we come to our final point in verses 21 through 25 that lets us know that God's perfect grace saves. God's perfect grace saves. In the first few, verses of t- first few verses of today's text, we saw that despite Israel's sin, God initiated. He start, he began a plan to free Israel from their enemy. The perfect grace of God frees us from sin's captivity. God's perfect grace liberates us from the grasp of sin. Look at verses 21 through 25. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah, or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. Then the woman gave birth to a son, and named him Samson. And the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to <coughs> stir in him, in between Zorah and Estel. Manoah was aware that anyone who saw God would not survive. When Manoah and his wife knew that the man of God was actually the angel of the Lord, they feared for their lives that they should have because they knew and know that when you see God, you die. Manoah's wife assured him that the Lord appeared to them to complete their God-given task to birth their son, Samson. God chose Samson to deliver Israel from the Philistines. In the same way, God saved Israel from total destruction by Sam- through Samson We are saved by Jesus from the devastating power of sin. It's a picture of Jesus' salvation for our lives from sin that we are not destroyed. You know, it's been almost five months since a a boy's soccer team in Thailand were rescued after being trapped in a cave for several weeks. You might recall that. It's hard to imagine the fear of these boys as they face the possibility of dying in this cave. They were trapped with only one way out. For me, it was a, a very clear and graphic picture of being imprisoned in the cave of sin with only one way out. God's grace saves us from the darkness of sin through Jesus, who is the one and only way out to be freed from certain eternal death. The rescue of Israel was temporary. But the salvation of Jesus is permanent. Jesus saves us for eternity. That song, More Than Enough, is true. God's grace is more than enough. He gives us enough. We can't give him enough. He gives us it all. More than enough, God's grace saves us for eternity. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord because they were influenced by the religion and culture of their society. They justified, they rationalized, and they even defined sin. They decided in their own minds what sin was and was not. 
the portrait of grace tells us that it's a, his grace is a, a beautiful illustration of God's mirac- miraculous grace that is patient, compassionate, and saves us. That even though we sometimes define sin by our rationalizations and justifications, we have to remember this truth, that sin is anything outside of God's will. And you know that through his word. God's grace is miraculous, patient, compassionate, and saves us. Think of yourselves in a museum and meditating upon this portrait of grace. And let that portrait of grace pierce your heart and your soul. Draw near to him through Jesus, who lived and died and was raised again on the third day to rescue us from that cave of sin. May we as imperfect people receive God's perfect grace to live freely and powerfully according to his will. Let's pray together. God, our Father, creator of all things, all beautiful things, you give us so many gifts. Every good and gracious gift is from you. Your gift of grace. Help us to understand that as we look at Judges 13 through the lives of Manoah, his wife, and through the birth of Samson. How you moved throughout that situation, extending your grace in the ways that we have just seen. May we remember this grace and not take it so lightly that our lives could be changed and we see our sin and identify our sin, yet we can go to you knowing that your grace will be filled with compassion and patience and love and salvation. Thank you, Lord, that we could look at that and understand this in our heads, but let it be a part of our hearts that Jesus died on that cross, that we can have this grace, that we get this grace, that this gift is really ours. It will change the way we look at things. It will change the way we view life if we live in this grace within your will. We praise you, Lord, for these, this awesome thought. And now as we begin to think about this grace and are thankful for it and appreciate your love for us, as we offer our tithes and offering to you, may you take what we have, what we have to offer to you, may you take that and bless it and multiply it, that your kingdom can be grown through our giving, through this body of Christ here at San Lorenzo, that we can affect our towns, our society, our culture, and even the world, that your name will be proclaimed, and your son will be glorified, and your son will be honored, as we try to do this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.